This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello from the COP28 climate talks in Dubai. I'm David Fogarty, and I'm the host of the Green Pulse podcast for The Straits Times. With us today is our very special guest, Mr. Ralph Reganvanu, the Minister for Climate Change and the Environment for the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu. Now, Vanuatu might be a small country, but for decades it has been a powerful voice for global climate action and is also on the front lines of the climate crisis. It has suffered devastating cyclones, rising sea levels, coral bleaching from warming oceans, and other impacts. Mr. Reganvanu is here to tell us more about this. Welcome to Green Pulse, Minister. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with, tell us a little bit about Vanuatu and why it is so vulnerable to climate impacts. Well, Vanuatu has been consistently ranked by the uh, UN University in its World Risk Index as the country with the highest disaster risk worldwide. And this is consistently, this is the Institute for Environment and Human Security at the UN University. And it's because not only are we the most at-risk country of natural hazards because we are subject to all the hazards that arise from climate change, like tropical cyclones, which are increasing in frequency and intensity, uh, other natural hazards like high-intensity rainfall events and that, that, but also we are on the Pacific Ring of Fire. So in our country, for example, our small archipelago of 80 islands, we have eight volcanoes and earthquakes all the time. There's constantly low-level earthquakes every day, every hour, and some quite large ones. Uh, and then on top of that, we used to be a least developed country, according to the United Nations. So that's the poorest countries of the world, according to GDP. And we just graduated from that status to become what they call a developing country, which is the next category up. But obviously, we are one of the poorest developing countries because we've just graduated from least developed country status, which means we don't have the financial capacity to build resilience and to respond to these constant disasters, which makes us continually disaster prone. And that's why we are considered so vulnerable to climate impacts, because not only do we experience all of the climatic impacts and all the high intensity natural hazards, but we have the most limited capacity to be able to respond to those in terms of relief, recovery, uh, rebuilding. It takes us years, for example, to rebuild from certain severe disasters because we just don't have the capacity and we depend on international partnership and financing to do that. And of course, the difficulty of accessing climate finance is one of the reasons why we are here at COP, to talk about climate finance and making it easier for countries like us to get the finance we need to build our resilience so that we don't have to continually just be building back every few months after every disaster that hits us. Yeah, so that leads neatly into my next question, which is because climate change impacts are worsening. And for example, this year, Vanuatu suffered a series of powerful cyclones, I think two back-to-back in late February, early March, both Category 4, I think, and a Category 5 cyclone Lola in October. And you've had cyclones which have wiped out 30, 40% of your GDP in one shot, I think, isn't it, in the past? So how is that directly affecting the people and the economy? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like one step forward and two step back in a way, right, in terms of development. Or... That's exactly what it's like. The very first Category 5 tropical cyclone hit the Pacific, hit Vanuatu in 2015, uh, Cyclone Pam. And that, uh, that single event 
uh, now we know the costing, it cost us 64% of our GDP. So that tells you the scale of these disasters for a country that's so small and with such limited financial capacity. So 64% of the budget, you can imagine, gone in one event in terms of responding and also recovery. And by the time the next Category 5 cyclone hit us in 2020, which was five years later, we still had damage from 2015 because we hadn't been able to... Uh, we had funding. Funding had been pledged. It hadn't come through. We hadn't gone through the process of having it released. And so we had pledged funding to repair schools and hospitals, for example, on certain islands that had not come through. So these buildings were still damaged when the next cyclone hit. And so when you think about all the children who were in temporary housing for schools, uh, temporary school infrastructure under you know, UNICEF tents and the like, makeshift construction for years, not in a proper classroom, and then the access to health services, which was made more difficult because the health facility was destroyed, and so that's also a makeshift, while waiting for pledged financing to come through to assist to rebuild. In the meantime, another cyclone comes. And so it really affects all aspects of life in our country in terms of being able to access basic services. When you have tropical cyclones with really heavy rainfall, roads are washed away. And so you have makeshift temporary roads for years, temporary public infrastructure. What we are looking for is the level of financing that we need to build things at 10 times the cost, but they're going to be resilient, right? And the next cyclone, they won't be destroyed. Mm. And so that's how we build resilience, but it costs, as I said, 10 to 20 times the cost of a normal road, a normal building, if you climate proof it. Right. Now, yourself and the Vanuatu government have been quite powerful advocates for rich nations and the fossil fuel industry to take responsibility for the climate impacts caused by burning coal, oil and gas. So tell us more about this. So for us, the whole issue of climate change, uh, these UNFCCC processes, the COPs, it's fundamentally about accountability and justice. Vanuatu historically has been responsible for 0.00016% of global emissions. And yet, as I said earlier, we are the country most at risk and seriously experiencing right now loss and damage at a much higher rate than we expected right now. And we don't have the capacity to build our resilience to adapt. So it really is a accountability issue because we didn't cause this problem we're facing. We don't have the means to deal with it. And yet the countries that caused it do have the means. And we're seeing in the countries that have traditionally been high emitters that have caused the greenhouse gas emissions that have caused climate change, which has been scientifically proven by the IPCC among other, other scientific organizations. Um, there's a direct causation there, scientifically proven. And then they have all these resources including trillions going to subsidies to fossil fuel companies to perpetuate and continue the problem. And so that's why there is an accountability and justice issue because why should we have to face these enormous costs and enormous suffering to our people? I mean, we're talking about long-term health problems. You're seeing, you know, problems with food security, long-term health issues like stunting of children who can't get enough food security from constantly damaged food gardens and so on. And yet, you know, rich countries are directly funneling public funds into the cause of the problem. And so Vanuatu is a very, you know, poor country, a very vulnerable country. We are a very insignificant country in global terms. So the only hope we have for addressing this problem 
is building international cooperation to get the root cause addressed and get the climate finance flowing in a way that reflects our lack of responsibility and the fact that there are resources that should be made available to us so that we can build our resilience and address the loss and damage that is happening. So the only way we can do that, we can't do it by ourselves. We're not a big state like the US or a big conglomerate of states like the EU. We can only do it by building international cooperation. That's why we focus so much effort on climate diplomacy to build these movements of states, um, a critical mass of states with the right or with the, who share the same views so that we can build this into the international system so that we could stop the impacts that are affecting us. You know, that's obviously the first thing we want is if we can stop the global warming by getting the world to stick to this 1.5 degree target by the necessary emissions reductions that we need to see that we all agreed upon at Paris, by the way, ensure that pledges for climate finance are actually met, actually paid up by the countries that pledge them and that they are made easily accessible to countries like us who are the most vulnerable so we don't have to go through all these loops and hoops to get the money. That's what we hear COP to talk about. But you said that Vanuatu is an insignificant country, and yet you have quite powerful alliances with fellow Pacific nations and indeed um, broader island nations across the globe, such as the Alliance of Small Island States, for example. That has become a very powerful block of nations in the UNFCCC process, this at COP28 and in the, the preceding years. That's a very powerful voice. So do you think that will help shape a narrative around phasing out or phasing down fossil fuels here? I mean, that's it's kind of a red line for your nation and many other vulnerable island nations as well. Yes, the, the fossil fuel phase out language that we want to see coming out of the negotiated outcome here at COP mm. is a red line for the Pacific Small Island Developing States, what we call the PCEDS group, which is our immediate constituency. So it's all the Pacific Small Island Developing States, and there's less than 20, but about 15 or so. So it is a good, decent block. We are, um, that PCEDS is a part of a larger constituency, which is IOSIS, the Association of Small Island States. And so we are trying to get our red lines translated into the IOSIS red lines. And that is difficult because in IOSIS, you have countries like Singapore who push back. Singapore is probably the most conservative country in IOSIS in terms of you have PCEDS pushing for the highest ambition and Singapore always kind of watering it down and trying to be conservative. And so if we manage to win over Singapore in OSIS, then OSIS is part of a larger block, which is the G77 in China, in which you have China, Saudi Arabia, and they are, you know, the real pushes back in that group. At COP, that is our negotiating, basically our team, mm. G77 and China. And as you can see, it's a very conflicted team. I mean, we, are, we have fundamental disagreements on things. And so that's, it is quite difficult to... Because then the G77 China is the one that negotiates with the global north, right? The developed countries, EU, the States, the UK, which is another block. And um, while we try to have unity, to have a stronger negotiating position, on some issues we can't find that unity because... And fossil fuel phase-out is a classic example. In G77 and China, you have China and Saudi Arabia at one end of the spectrum saying no to fossil fuel phase-out and continuing to expand production. And then you have us at the other end saying you have to immediately stop all production and phase out, including phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies. So it makes it very difficult for us to negotiate at these events. But, I mean, we have no choice. But, of course, neighbouring Australia also has quite a conflicting sort of position. On the one hand, it's, you know, it's an important aid donor to the Pacific, but, of course, it's also one of the world's largest fossil fuel exporters. 
and is, is a key driver of climate change. So that's also quite an awkward negotiating position, I think, for the Pacific Island states, which need to have or want to have good relations with Australia, but also sees Australia as a major part of the problem. Yes, yeah, so the peak political body for the Pacific is the Pacific Islands Forum. And the Pacific Islands Forum includes Australia and New Zealand, which is why when I talk about COP, we don't talk about Pacific Islands Forum, we talk about PCIDS. We formed a different group which excludes Australia because when we come to COP, PCIDS, part of IOSIS, as part of G77 plus China, is the opposing group to the Western developed countries, which includes Australia, right? So they are on the opposite side of us when it comes to negotiating these kind of issues, especially fossil fuel phase up. So on one hand, Australia is our closest development partner in the Pacific. It's our major economic partner, uh, source of most of our imports, biggest development aid contributor to the Pacific. Mm. And they are domestically pursuing a very fast transition to renewable energy, mm. but it's their fossil fuel exports. And they are one of the top fossil fuel exporters in the world. That is our problem. And uh, just recently, you know, we, we were asking them, you've got to phase out. And they said, well, we can't do that because we need to supply Japan, China, Korea with their energy needs. And so it's almost like uh, I heard someone call it the drug dealer's excuse, you know. We can't stop because they need it. And so this is an ongoing discourse or conversation having with Australia to try and encourage them to not only transition their own economy, but start to phase out fossil fuels and especially fossil fuel subsidies. They give trillions of dollars a year to subsidize their fossil fuel industry. And we're saying, look, we need money. That's the money. If you're our friend, take the money from subsidies. You don't have to take any new money from taxation or anything. Just take the subsidies that you currently give your fossil fuel industry and move them to helping us build our resilience in the Pacific. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now, loss and damage, of course, is a key issue, not just for Vanuatu, but many other vulnerable countries. And Vanuatu, of course, pioneered the concept of loss and damage as far back, I think, as 1991. So tell us a little bit more about this and your views on the loss and damage agreement reached here at COP28 to basically initialize a climate and damage fund that will be initially hosted by the World Bank. So the decision that was reached on, loss and, on the loss and damage fund, uh, we welcome it. It was a very difficult decision. And we made a lot of concessions, difficult concessions. But the overall package, we're happy with it because it's a reflection of compromise by everybody. And really, um, it's the board that now will make some of the important decisions. And we're happy about that. And uh, we, we intend to have a Pacific representative on the board mm. to give our views and make sure we are part of that decision-making process. And we do welcome the pledges that have been made to capitalize the fund here at COP28. But we want to see those pledges followed up with actual financial contributions, unlike you know, some of the pledges that were made at Paris and never followed up. Um, it's very important that we operationalize the Santiago network because it's uh, complementary to this fund, but essential to make the fund work. But one thing is that this loss and damage fund must not undermine the importance of a credible response to the global stock take and fossil fuel phase out. Because if we don't phase out fossil fuels, all of this loss and damage, it won't be enough to deal with the problem. We are just making the problem worse, right? That is a direct contribution to making the problem worse. So we are hoping that, you know, 1.5 degrees is non-negotiable for us. It's a red line. Degation needs to address that to make the loss and damage fund something that is meaningful 
if we don't meet 1.5, no financing arrangement will address the costs of the failure to reach that goal. Just as a final question, what is Vanuatu's view of the recent agreement between Australia and fellow Pacific Island state of Tuvalu? The deal involves supporting migration to Australia as well as economic and security cooperation. So do you think this is a model for the rest of the Pacific? You've got to remember that Tuvalu and Kiribati are entirely atoll states. So they're atolls that at most are two metres above sea level at the highest point, or three metres. It's a very different situation to Vanuatu, which is a very mountainous country. So we are the high islands of the Pacific, volcanic chains, very you know, high hammer, not on an international scale, but mountainous countries. So we don't face the same existential threat that Tuvalu or Kiribati faces, where those countries are literally going to disappear under the waves if sea level goes at the way it's predicted and the way it's already going. So for us, it's not so urgent that we find somewhere else to go because people are already moving uphill. And that's been happening for decades. Our communities have been relocating themselves and the government is also involved in the process of trying to find safe land that it can move people who don't have their own customary land or traditional ancestral land to move on. But most people have access to ancestral land and just move along on their own customary land without any financial costs involved necessarily. But more and more, the government will have to come in to build new infrastructure, new public services, schools and health facilities in new locations where people are moving to. But in terms of uh, the Tuvalu Australia agreement being a model for the Pacific, I don't think it is because of the different national circumstances. And also, I think we are not necessarily prepared to make the same concessions that Tuvalu made right. to get the deal. But just looking forward to the future um, in terms of escalating climate impacts, is there a limit to what a lot of Pacific Island nations can withstand? Obviously, it's rising sea levels as one threat, warming oceans, bleaching of coral reefs, loss of fish stocks, more powerful storms. I mean, this is the problem that Tuvalu and Kiribati sort of face, obviously, is it's an existential threat at some point. Those countries will become uninhabitable. For Vanuatu, that may be longer because you have higher land. But if the impacts just get worse and worse and more costly, the costs of building climate-proof infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roads, just escalates, right? At what point does it become just unaffordable to live there? Essentially, what we're going to see is our standard of living decline. We're going to not be able to be safe anymore. Families, communities, individuals, we are going to be living in a constant state of danger. We are not going to have any security for even our homes, our communities. We're going to be permanently unsafe. Um, the government is not going to be able to continue to provide basic services to the population, so we'll see declining education, health outcomes, social fragmentation as a result, disintegration. So we're looking at things getting very bad in terms of the way society is going. So, you know, you always say that, uh, you know, you want your children to have a better life than you have. That's not going to happen in the Pacific. Our children definitely are going to have worse lives than we've had. We've enjoyed our relatively good lives in the Pacific, but the future is not looking bright. So if we don't get action on reduction of emissions and decline in global warming to, you know, stave off probably the worst possible scenario, we're already facing a terrible scenario, but we could limit how bad it gets if we take climate action now to stop global warming. If we don't get the adequate climate finance that we're asking for to be able to build resilience in our communities and climate-proof our future, 
our future is it's almost like uh, our societies will start to fall apart. Mm. And we can see a, a future that's very bleak for our children and grandchildren. So that makes getting a good deal on COP28 really absolutely vital. It's essential. If we don't get it, we are looking down the barrel of a gun, basically. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a very sobering account of the future that Vanuatu faces and why uh, ambitious climate action is so important. Thank you, David, and I hope your listeners and your readers will uh, appreciate how important it is to us that everyone in the world takes fossil fuel phase-out, just transition very seriously, because if everyone does it in every country in the world, we have a future. Thank you. Thank you. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.